There are many cultural icons that can represent a city. The Eiffel Tower, the Statue of Liberty, or the Liberty Bell. We talked to Tim McNally about his love letter to the city of New Orleans, his new book about the iconic cocktail of New Orleans, the Sazerac. It's on tip of the tongue. Welcome to Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. Hi, we're here today with Tim McNally. Tim and his wife, Brenda Maitland, were founders of the Museum of the American Cocktail. He is a food writer and wine writer and participates in lots of wine events. And he has a daily show on WGSO here in New Orleans, Dine, Wine, and Spirit Show. Welcome. Liz, thank you. It's good to be with you. So I am so happy to have you here to talk about your book, The Sazerac. I think that it's one of those books that everybody who loves New Orleans should have a copy of. Very kind. Thank you. It really not only talks about the drink, of course, which is the purpose of the book, but in addition to that, this book really is almost like a love letter to the city. And um, I have to tell you, I, I told you this before we started, that it was such a surprise to me to see how much of a sentimentalist you are. And I think that it's just so Secrets wonderful. Out. <laughs> yes. Secrets out. You can't put that back in the box. No, no, no. Once you've seen that, it's out. It's done. It's all done. No, I owe a great debt of gratitude to my beautiful wife of about 38 years now, to the city of New Orleans, which I truly love. And uh, both of them, it's a toss-up. I don't know which one I love more than the other. There are days when I vacillate. Well, the book is published by LSU Press, so right. kudos to them for, for getting you to write it. But let's also talk about the Sazerac. Before we actually say this is the story of the Sazerac, one of the things you talk about is the, the way you have come to the Sazerac from a time when you only had it at certain special events. Yeah, Mardi Gras, Carnival. And so how did that happen? How did you make that transition? Well, I was I was guests of Hermes at their luncheon on the day of their parade, which is Friday before Mardi Gras. And it's at Antoine's. And that's one of the traditional things that was in the room when you went in to have your lunch with the float folk and the float captains. And uh, it's the first time I tried the drink. And it was, it was obviously an eye-opening experience. And uh, I loved it from the first sip. Uh, this is interesting. This is not anything that I've had before. It wasn't ridiculously sweet. It wasn't ridiculously overpowering. It was just a well-constructed beverage. And I, I really enjoyed the heck out of it. And that, you know, that was a lovely thing. And that went on from year to year. I never thought about having Sazerac's away from Carnival 
uh, except a few years later, we went to a holiday party and they were there. And I went, oh, wow, I'm expanding my knowledge here. This is fabulous. And I became a Sazerac aficionado and a lover. And then I became what we all should be, and that is curious. So are you a rye Sazerac drinker, or do you like it with cognac, or do you like it with bourbon? There are days, right? Uh And I really enjoy exposing people to the original Sazerac, which is cognac and absinthe as its core ingredients. It, It came to have... Uh, rye, uh, whiskey, and uh, and then eventually herb scent in it. And for a while, it did Perrineau after the days when absinthe was looked unkindly upon in the early part of the uh, 20th century. So I'm kind of all over the board on this thing, but I enjoy telling people that if you've had a Sazerac and you like it with rye and with herb scent, which is the way a lot of bars make it right. uh, today, try the original. Try the one with cognac and absinthe and see it's a whole different drink. Mm-hmm. You know that. Mm-hmm. You've had them both. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But both of them have the thing that really, really makes me love it, and that's that perfume. When you put the glass up to your mouth, I'm in love with that. We've lost along the way, and hopefully we're regaining it now with this new breed of mixologists and bartenders, but we've lost the ability to be elegant. And I think Sazerac is an elegant drink. And I like elegant drinks. I, I, you know, I, I don't want them in the frou-frou glass or anything mm-hmm, like that. Mm-hmm. And I love the fact that Sazeracs continue to come in a rocks glass. Right. You know, it takes you back to earth uh-huh. you know, type of thing. But, uh, no, I, I, I like the elegance in a drink and the balance, as we all talk about. And, you know, you you and I and uh, and many others have had a good opportunity to spend time with Dale and Jill DeGroff. Yes. And they're all about balance. Mm-hmm. They're all about nothing overwhelms in a drink. Everything has its own role to play and that's where Sazerac is so let's also talk and I love this part of your book too where you actually talk about where the word cocktail comes from Ah. and you debunk the myth about the coctier which everybody sees all over the internet and has been adopted by a lot of the tourism industry in New Orleans the sadness of the internet Yes. Without editing. Yes. <laughs> it's a great story. It is a great story. Fact checking and all that sort of thing is not part of it. But tell us the real story. Well, it's my real story. Okay. Mm-hmm. So there may be another real story, but this harkens back into the early 1800s and it uh, probably harkens back into New England or England, either way. Probably. London first. Mm-hmm. And and it is back in those days before anybody thought about doing blends of liqueurs and spirits and citrus and sugars and etc. The small keg sat up on the bar, which is the way the beverages were delivered to the bar. It was mm-hmm. a single spirit of some type, certainly not as refined as we're accustomed to. And then people went up and hit the spigot and opened it up and took some and the bartender determined how much you took and how much you're going to pay for that and that sort of thing. As it got down to the bottom of the keg, uh, the keg was either reusable or it was new to that point, and there was dregs 
in the keg, and you couldn't get them out mm-hmm. because the the spigot wouldn't let them out. Or and the spigot might have been higher. It was higher than yeah. the bottom of the, of the roundness of the keg, exactly. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was a a cock. Uh, that spigot. And so they had to get in there and add some other liquid to liquefy the dregs, if you will. And then they determined that in order to get it through the cock, uh, that, that, you know, this is going to be a little stronger, a little different style of drink than you had from the top of the keg. And uh, so that was the tail. And uh, that's the role, that's what I'm grasping onto is the cocktail. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so, but they had to add something into that keg in order to make the, the dregs come out through the cock. And so what might they have added? Probably raw spirit, maybe what was in there before from, and it came from the next keg, maybe, Mm -hmm. or something like that. It was not going to be water Mm -hmm. because the bottom already was stronger than the top of the keg. So they, uh, they wanted to add something in there, not to add to the strength, but to add to the fact that it would flow. Right, right. And it might not even have dissolved in water. Oh, no, no, that, 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 and, and. Keep in mind that these kegs were not clean. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's not like today where you go to a winery or go to a distillery and they got the steam hoses out and they're cleaning the heck out of these new kegs. They never did that back then. Yeah. None of that. None of well, that. fortunately, it was filled with alcohol, so there probably wasn't anything growing. What in there. disease problem? It wasn't that. It was just getting getting to the product. <laughs> So, so how is it that you think that the Sazerac is identified with New Orleans? I'm going to tell you a story. Please. When Lift Your Spirits came out, which is the book I wrote with Chris. Oh, I remember very well. So I was in New York doing a book signing, and we were trying to serve Sazeracs. And I went to 12 different liquor stores in New York City to find either herb saint or absinthe and it was it was insane i couldn't believe i didn't travel with it because i thought well i'll just buy it up there sure and it was virtually impossible i finally found somebody who had absinthe and they sold it to me like i was buying drugs you know (laughs) we're going to report you on this And, and so, you know, it, it was, but it was an ordeal and I had brought Peugeot bitters, thank goodness, because I couldn't find that either. You know, Liz, there are, and, and this is your territory more than mine, but there are situations that we get into, New Orleanians get into when we travel, we give it up. We sacrifice it. My opinion, coffee. We don't get good coffee much away from New Orleans. We right. certainly don't get good French bread. Right. We certainly don't get good meats from the South Louisiana for cochon and things of that <laughs> nature. So we give up these things when we travel. Now, right. there are people that want to offer those things because they're delicious and they've been here. And they say, oh, yeah, heck, we've got boudin. Oh, uh, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, right. So that's where I am with the Sazerac. And, mm-hmm. and, and I have been through what you've gone through. You know, you go into a bar and you go, what do I want? What do I want? I don't know, champagne or maybe a good burgundy. Oh, I know. I want a Sazerac. And they look at you like, what in the world are you talking about? Right. Type of thing. 
it's hard to get a good Sazerac away from here. I don't think that's as true as it used to be, mm-hmm. but it's really still very true. It's still a, a very obscure beverage, except in the city limits of New Orleans. Well, bartenders everywhere, this is my message. Get a hold of this book because you yourself will fall in love with the Sazerac, and so then you'll learn how to make it. Well, it's it's so intertwined with our city, and I, I'm just thrilled that you had a part in this, Liz, and in, in making this the official cocktail of New Orleans. I can't think of another city that has an official cocktail or desires to have an official cocktail or has earned the right to have an official cocktail but our city, uh, New Orleans. And, and so, therefore, it needs to be done right here. And so if you are a bartender out there listening to this uh, podcast, and you should listen every – you're on every week, aren't every you? Every week, Every yeah. week you should listen to the podcast because you're going to learn something. And this will help you respect what is going on in one of the capitals of the world in terms of food and drink, and, uh, and you'll, you'll do it right. So if you were asked that perennial question, what did you come away with having written this book that was something that you're really glad that you found out about or learned more about or something like that? I think the history of our city is so fascinating, and particularly pre-Civil War days, mm-hmm. um, back in the 1840s, 1850s, even up until 1862. Very, just interesting history. And and when you think about those kind of things, I know you do because you're very much attuned, but you say, wow, there were real people like me roaming these streets, walking up these same streets, you know. And, and I think that same experience happened to uh, Ted Bro mm-hmm. when walking up Charter Street and passing in front of the antique store Luculus. And he saw this glassware in the, in the window, and he was curious about it. Uh, and it was an absinthe fountain, which he knew nothing about. He was a chemist for Shell Oil up in Norco, north of here. And, and he then took that and ran with that, and he put absinthe back on the world map when it had no business being off in the first place. Ted, it, and so I, I think we, we still have the characters. We still have the, the, the missionaries. We still have the discoverers of New Orleans amongst us. That's the thing that I love about the absinthe story. We were the absinthe-drinking capital of the United States. Yep. And that alone is exciting. We continue to drink it. Um, So there's that. Then it turns around that after it's been banned, a New Orleanian is key to making it available again. I mean, all of that is just really an unusual thing that it all comes back to It's full circle stuff, isn't it? It's full circle stuff. And you never get full circle stuff in life. That's right. You, know, you never get that. You, oh, we're going to take you around to the 9 o'clock position, then I'm going to drop you off. That happens in books, you know, where yeah. it comes full circle, and then you kind of watch that movie and you go, that could never happen. But it really did <laughs> it happen. It really did happen. Yeah. It really And, it, and it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful story. And I know that you and I have had this experience with food and drink and all that. If that story isn't true, I wish it were. <laughs> you know, and, and so if, if it's, if it's going to be an truth we'll find where the untruth is and we won't be able to disseminate the story but if it if it is at all possible that story is true and it is true as you know because ted bros told us that story right. on more than one occasion and he's actually alive to tell he's the story still here still i think he's in birmingham though isn't he i don't think he's in new orleans no he's anymore. not in new orleans anymore. no 
but but he just he just is a great guy. And when he went to the federal government and petitioned for the right to distribute absinthe and to make it, uh, they looked at him like he had two heads. And he brought them all of the scientific evidence that they hadn't done what they thought they had done. And uh, he showed them the gas chromatograph runs, all those things. We've got it. We've got absence back. And and the truth of the matter is most people still think absence is illegal. Oh, I know. You know, we have the exhibit here at the museum and people always come, like they come irate to the front desk and they say, how can you possibly be showing people about this and, and have bottles and all that sort of thing for them to see when this makes you hallucinate? Yeah. And you're just like, oh, please yeah. calm down. Let's talk home. about this. <laughs> you know that once we got a phone call from a museum in Pennsylvania, and I, I, I love this. They were doing a, an exhibit about blood because they were a science museum. Now, this oh. is a science museum, so remember this. Okay. And then they were doing this little kind of off-the-beaten-track part of the story, which is that if a vampire drinks your blood and you were drinking absinthe before that vampire drank your blood then the vampire would hallucinate. <laughs> I love that. So hadn't heard it. I love that. <laughs> so they were asking us if we would lend them some of the artifacts that we have of, of absinthe. Well, then they were going to have a night when they served absinthe, you know, to bring people into the exhibit and everything. Sure, sure. Their insurance company told them that, they couldn't serve absinthe because it was a hallucinogenic drug. Oh, my gosh. So they're calling me saying, is this true? <laughs> <laughs> and it never was and hasn't been for 200 years. So I told them, I said, you know, I can't, I'm not a scientist. I can't write an affidavit as a scientist to right. say that it's not hallucinogenic. But I can tell you that on this day... The FDA and the USDA lifted the ban. So why don't you look at that and tell that to your insurance company? Sure. And so anyway, they forced the insurance company to actually research it and not have some agent who read about this, you know, sure. ages ago. Yeah. And so they, they wound up having the party. But it was it was amazing to me that this science museum was having to deal with this problem. That is nuts. I know. <laughs> that is completely crazy. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, we have people come down here and, and they think that our lifestyle is, you know, so sybaritic and we walk the streets and drunk and stumbling and all that type of thing. And sometimes we do, uh, but that isn't the way we live. Right. And I've had people on more than one occasion say, I've never come to New Orleans before. I've never wanted to come to New Orleans before, but after a trip to New Orleans, it's so cultured and so civilized and the food that you eat and the things you are drinking and what you do and your museums, they said, I never plugged any of that in. Right. It is really quite a mindful way to live. Yes. Because you have a certain desire for excellence. And I think that that's a, a part of the culture. I really do. I think we're emotional people and, and we want to, and we live emotionally. Now, I don't know why that ended up here at the bottom of this river in this place. I, I don't have any answers to that. I don't think anybody does. It's just that all these things coming together, all of these cultures, all of these peoples and, and the hardships that we've endured have made us what we are today. So let's talk a little bit about prohibition. Okay. And 
Legendre and all of that sort of thing. Okay. So you talk about it in the book. So why don't you talk well, about it's, a little it, bit? Well, prohibition, really, you, you can trace the beginnings of prohibition to in the early 1900s, 1905, 1906, about the same time that absinthe went on the bad list. Mm -hmm. Okay. And there was the movement put forth by Carrie Nation, the prohibitionists and that type of thing early. They couldn't make it all happen because here comes the war mm -hmm. and that interrupted everything. Right. But they never lost the desire to get alcohol away from our children and away from us because it ruins lives. And um, and so after the war, after World War One, they took up the banner again and put in prohibition. Prohibition was an interesting, um, and it's called an experiment. It was not. It was uh, a killing a gnat with a sledgehammer, um, and and the American public public went along with it. And the legislatures went along with it because it seemed to be politically expedient. It seemed to be the shortest way to diffuse the problem and not have ladies angry with the bar owners and manufacturers. Um, it, it, prohibition, of course, never worked. Mm -hmm. People made – first of all, there was not prohibition against alcohol as we all think it is. You could still make alcohol, gin and bourbon and, and vodka for your family. You, you could make it for your personal consumption. It was it was okay. It wasn't very good, <laughs> but it was okay. The, the the sadness of prohibition for me is that at that time we had just sort of completed our westward trek in America. We had sort of you know conquered the frontier, if you will, and that space between the Mississippi River and the Pacific Ocean was populated now, and particularly up in Northern California and Sonoma County and Napa County is populated by Italians, and the Italians brought their cuttings with them from their vines back home in Italy, where they were escaping in hopes of having a better life. Mm -hmm. And I know in particular the Sebastianis uh, in Northern California couldn't believe that their country, their adopted country, would outlaw something they love to do. And they went to jail. They were a wonderful book. I know you've read it, Liz, uh, When the Rivers Ran Red, mm -hmm. uh, all about prohibition in Sonoma County. Because the revenuers would go in there, the government agents, and pick up all these barrels and crack them open and let them drain into the streams and the rivers. But the people who made that wine were like, what are you doing? You know, this is our family's heritage. This is what we do. And so that, to me, is the great sadness of prohibition. Besides the rise of organized crime and other things that accompany prohibition, uh, there was a lot of death in prohibition, unfortunately. Um, and that our own government put those chemicals into alcohol so that and people died. Yes, and they, they, they would kill you. Yes. They would kill you. That, that was the attitude that they brought to the table to keep you from drinking, yeah. as opposed to saying, look, don't drink. And after that, it's none of your business. You know, and uh, so the end of prohibition was cause for a great celebration because it was wrong. It was all, even the people that wanted it knew that it was wrong. It was just the wrong approach. And so if we want to help people, we, sh we can establish homes and hospitals and programs as we have today and, uh, and help them in that way one-on-one -on -one, rather than making the whole world uh, not have something that people seem to have liked and desired. So, but it, what it did was it stopped in America the progress of this industry. Mm -hmm. This industry just about, I mean, it died. 
So that's why when we pick it back up again in the 30s, when Lejeune and uh, and put and they had Herb Sant back in the late 1918, 1919, back in there, they had it, but they couldn't market it because you know of all the rules and and the impending. The 19th Amendment mm-hmm. coming along. So we set our industry back. We set our ability to make money from this product back 25, 30 years. And then when we tried to catch up, here comes World War II. So we are really behind the eight ball then. <laughs> right. We are really, so you can't sit around and say, oh, well, we're going to have a wine industry. We're going to have a distillery industry, all that in the middle of a fight for global democracy. So uh, prohibition was just nasty. It was horrible. And I'm, I'm happy that America has reached the realization that by doing such a thing, you're wrong. I think we've reached that realization. I, I, I think so. Yeah, yes. I hope so. I hope I'm not taking too much for granted here. No, I, I think that's a pretty universal concept that that was a mistake. That was a mistake, a complete mistake. So, but in truth, New Orleans really never subscribed to prohibition. <laughs> if the truth be known, we never really gave it up. And as you well know, the story of bootleggers in New Orleans and people that ran, you know, speakeasies here and all that, they're everywhere. If you wanted to drink in New Orleans, there was no problem. Mm-hmm. And the book on obituary cocktail that uh, Carrie wrote was a terrific story, uh-huh. beautiful coffee table book about that it took uh, a revenuer leaving the train at Union Passenger Terminal about 19 seconds to get a drink when they landed in New Orleans. <laughs> That's a great story. And that indicates that, you know, we're like those Italians during Prohibition. We can't imagine that this would be illegal. Right. This was a part of our existence, a part of our heritage, a part of our life, and what we like to do. Why would that be illegal? And who did it hurt? Yeah, yes. exactly, exactly, exactly. Well, and... and it's a wonderful industry today. I mean, you know, you and I both have, we're lucky to have a lot of friends in this industry and they're, they're terrific citizens. Mm -hmm. They will do anything in the world if it's the right thing to do. And not just because it means that their product becomes more commercially available or they're able to sell more of it. It is because it's the right thing to do. This city has benefited from so many of these people, buildings and festivals and, and events. Uh, you know, they're, they're terrific folk. Yes. Okay. We're about to wrap up. Okay. So I want to ask you. Yes. If you make your own Sazerac at home for yourself, how do you do it? Well, I, I, the recipe's in the book, and I'm going to hold that part of it out to make somebody buy the book. Okay. But, but don't, don't just assume you know what you're doing. Use a jigger. Use measurement tools to be sure that everything is in place because the Sazerac is not that big of a drink to begin with. Mm-hmm. And so if a little thing is out of place, suddenly you've got yourself overly sugared, overly citrused, overly spirited, and it's not the drink it's supposed to be. One of the little complaints I have about modern bartenders is that they have discovered the spritzer into the glass (laughs) as opposed to putting a little absinthe in the glass, spinning Mm -hmm. it around Mm -hmm. in the air, and then Mm -hmm. pouring. Well, how much excess are you pouring out? That little spritzer bothers me because I don't think that's a good way to do the glass. You should... 
put the absinthe or the herb scent into the, in glass, the glass, throw it in the air, spin it, have fun with it, you know, play with it, although your mother told you never play with your food, and then just a little bit you're going to pour out. It's nothing. It's nothing. So that's, that's uh, where I'm at. I totally agree with you about the spritzer. It's one of my pet peeves, too. too. And if I order a Sazerac, I actually tell them, I don't want you to spritz it. I want you to. I want you. Good for to, you. Because it, it's not the same. It's not the same. It is used, as you indicated earlier, it's used as the perfume. Mm-hmm. It is not a perfume. It is an ingredient that affects the taste. Mm-hmm. So, yes, it affects the bouquet, but it really affects the taste. Mm-hmm. And it. You can't get that from a spritzer. No, you can't. You no. can't. Absolutely. I was in a bar in Jacksonville, Oregon. I didn't know there was such a place uh-huh. up there doing a wine judging. And we go into a bar after a day of judging wine, and I ask them, can I, first of all, I get their, whatever the bar was featuring that day and by way of a drink. And then I say, can you do an, a Sazerac? Oh, of course we can. And here comes the spritzer. And I said, but you told me you could do a Sazerac. (laughs) The manager comes over and says, is this a problem? And I said, it's wrong, really. And he he said, really? And I I told him why. And he took that spritzer and threw it away. Good for him. Good for him. How about that, huh? So I'm sure that he probably pulled it out later because it had product in it. (laughs) So Tim McNally, author of The Sazerac, published by LSU Press. Read the book, and thank you so much for being here. Liz, thank you for the invitation. I was very honored that you asked. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue. We come to you from the Camellia Bean Studios at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, part of the Nitty Grits Network. For more information on today's podcast, join the Tip of the Tongue podcast group on Facebook. Please come by when you're in New Orleans, and don't forget to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Liz Williams.